Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. I am Greg Littmer, one of the elders for the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ, and I'd like to begin this episode by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we will be reading verses 18 through 25. There the Bible tells us, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Simply put for unbelievers, then and now, the gospel message was and is foolishness. After all, it is based upon the belief that from man, a man condemned to death, both salvation and life are given. But how can a dead man, who at the time it was said could not save himself, save others? Notice what the unbelievers at the time of the crucifixion had to say in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 42. And those passing by were hurtling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. For those who believe the word of the cross is God's power to save, but unbelievers call it foolishness. Long ago, through the prophet Isaiah, God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It seems that from the beginning of man's time upon the earth it has been a mistake of man to judge God by our human standards and human wisdom. And purely from the human perspective, many things of God appear to be foolish, but that is only because we seek to judge God without his wisdom. I'm calling this episode today the foolishness of God. Let's notice some examples of what man, at the time, 
would have found to be the foolishness of God. Consider the first mention of rain in Genesis 2 verses 4 through 6. It tells us this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Imagine then if in fact it continued that way with the earth being watered by a mist, the surprise Noah must have felt at the command he received from God four chapters later in the book of Genesis. Turning to Genesis chapter 6 verses 13 through 17 we find, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it, and you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall perish. The promise of God was that Noah and his household would be saved in the ark. All those outside of the ark would perish. Surely from a purely human standpoint, this was an example of the foolishness of God. There was no record of rain on the earth as of yet, but Noah is told to build a huge boat to save his family and the animals God told him to take. Yet, according to Hebrews 11 and verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. My friends, can you imagine the fun others had as they laughed at Noah? Noah, as a preacher of righteousness, according to Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, explained why he was building the ark. And we can imagine the reactions. Surely this was an example of the foolishness of God. We can just imagine the ridicule. But their laughter was soon to be drowned out, literally. As it turned out, the only foolishness involved was the foolishness of men in rejecting God. How about another example? While Israel was journeying through the wilderness, they often complained and murmured against God. And in different ways, God chastened them to bring them to repentance. One such occasion is found in Numbers 21. Reading verses 4 through 6, we find, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. 
They had no cure for the bites of the serpents. They were proving to be fatal. What were they to do? Well, looking at verses 8 and 9, we find, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. I have yet to meet anyone who could explain the medicinal properties of a brazen serpent. How can looking upon a serpent made of brass cure anyone of a deadly snake bite? That, from a human standpoint, is foolishness. It is foolishness if God is left out of the equation. But remember that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 25 tells us the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And everyone cured of a snake bite in the camp of Israel was cured God's way. The rest died. Jesus referred to this event in connection with the foolishness of the cross. Consider John 3 verses 14 through 15 where the Lord said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Let's consider yet another that most of us are well aware of. Naaman, found in 2 Kings 5, was an important military man of Syria, captain of the army and a great man with his master, highly respected, but he was a leper. 2 Kings 5 verses 2 and 3 tell us, Now the Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman lost no time in heading for Israel. But when he came to the prophet of God, Elijah, he did not go through some fancy hocus-pocus to make an impression. Neither did he require some mighty deed. God's remedy was simple and found in verse 10 of 2 Kings 5. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. As far as Naaman was concerned, this was foolishness. Look at verses 11 and 12. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abinah and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But yet notice what his servants told him in verse 13. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman did what Elijah said, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. From the human point of view, Naaman's reasoning was flawless. Were not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? There was nothing magical nor curative about the waters of the Jordan. 
But it wasn't the Jordan River that cured. It was God. That is the point. The Jordan didn't cure lepers, but it cured Naaman because God willed it. There are so many today who are just like Naaman. When they read or hear Mark 16, 16, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. They react in the same way as Naaman did. Why isn't some other way just as good or even better? Water doesn't save. That is true. Water doesn't save, but God does. When God said dip seven times in the river Jordan, he meant it. And without obedience to that command, Naaman would have remained a leper. And when God says, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. He means it. And he will not wash away our sins until he, we do what he says. If some count that as foolishness, and believe me, some do, it is nonetheless the foolishness of God. How about yet another example of the foolishness of God? Israel had come out of the wilderness after 40 years of wandering. Now they faced the armed and fortified city of Jericho. How could they breach the wall and take the city? They were not as yet skilled in the finer points of besieging a city. Turning to Joshua chapter 6 verses 3 through 5, this is what God told them. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, and you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up as every man straight ahead. From a military standpoint, that was about as foolish a plan as ever devised. However, that is often the case when God is left out. In Hebrews 11 and verse 30 we read, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. We are to live by faith and walk by faith according to Romans 1.17 and 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. And our daily living is to reflect the kind of faith the Israelites had that won the battle of Jericho. It wasn't the marching nor the shouting that flattened the walls. It was God. The tactic that man would have called foolish worked because it was from God. And there are problems that arise in our lives daily. But he promised in Matthew 28 and verse 20, I'm with you always. And in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, I will not forsake you. With his presence and his strength, we can join our voices with Paul and declare as he did in Philippians 4:13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There will be Jerichos in our past, so to speak, that will never fall due to our wisdom and our strength. But when we depend on God and his will in our lives, Romans 8.37 assures us that we are more than conquerors. As far as some are concerned, the strictness of God is foolishness and no longer applicable. Will God really punish someone who makes a little mistake, but 
who judges what constitutes a little mistake. Cain brought a sacrifice to God, but it wasn't accepted. Was God too strict? Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire which God had not commanded in Leviticus 10, and God destroyed them. Was that too strict? God had said that no one was to touch the Ark of the Covenant, but when it began to fall, Uzzah reached forth his hand and prevented it from being damaged in 2 Samuel 6. In verse 7 we find, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Was that too strict? My friends, we don't have the right to sit in judgment on God. Our purpose is to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It is also true that Jesus became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That's Hebrews 5.9. Before we assume that God will overlook our refusal to submit to his will, we ought to see a vital principle rooted in the Old Testament and re-emphasized in the New. When King Saul was told to destroy all the Amalekites because of their opposition to God and his people, his mission was clear. He was to kill everyone, including the animals. But he didn't. He spared the king, Agag. Look at what God said to Saul through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It wasn't just one little mistake that condemns King Saul. It was his attitude that led to the mistake, or the sin, to be more specific. And what of today? The answer can be found in Hebrews 2, verses 2 through 3. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was as the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God demanded loyalty, and thus obedience then. He demands it now. To people almost 2,000 years ago, the word of the cross was foolishness. To people unwilling to put their trust in the word of the Lord, there is still much foolishness in the gospel. The one body of Christ, his church, one faith, one baptism, is all foolishness to some, but only those who don't believe what God has said. Let us all have the courage to accept what the Lord has revealed in his word. Let us have the determination to live by it, regardless of where it leads. And instead of trying to sit in judgment on any of the Lord's commands, let us all recognize that we will be judged by him and his word. Look at John 12 and verse 48. He who rejects me and does not my sayings has one that judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Let us always remember that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 25. 
I hope this has proved helpful to you. Thank you for listening.